broadcasting from a hotel room in Malta, New York. This is the Campus Reach Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 34. Me too, David, virgins marrying the rapist. Welcome, everybody, to the Campus Rich Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, flfnetwork.com, or crosspolitic.com. You can go over there to learn more about what we're doing. You can see our flagship show, Cross Politic, brought to you by Toby Knox and Gabe, as well as a few of the other podcasts we have there, some articles and everything else that we have going on. Um, so I'm in a bad mood. I just got done watching my Browns get demolished by the San Francisco 49ers. And uh, um, I think I'd be emotionally – I was emotional all right from about 1999. Uh, and then two years ago I think was the snapping point when we were just losing everything. And then uh, they have a little bit of excitement in the second half of last year and it come this year and kind of stink, uh, kind of ruins – everything. But um, today we're going to be, you know, as mentioned in the title, uh, a little bit David Goes Me Too over the weekend. I saw some tweets that, uh, and suddenly Twitter blows up on whether or not David raped Bathsheba. So I'm going to brush on that issue a little bit because the hermeneutics of that issue, I believe, are important as well as culturally important to how we understand a myriad of issues and in some ways seeking to address what's driving uh, the discussion I believe, and intertwined with that, as the topic says, uh, you know, virgins marrying the rapist. So oftentimes on a college campus, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 28 and 29 come up. So a few years ago, it's almost like one of those verses that just kind of tucked away. And, you know, for a long time, it's almost like I didn't even know it was in the Bible. Then I started open air preaching and it started coming up on campus. So I had to address it. And so the, the basic idea is this, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22, Starting in verse 13, uh, they lay out various laws regarding sexuality, um, be it a woman not being a virgin on her wedding night, be it uh, you know committing adultery, being forced to rape in the context of marriage, and what is to happen to everybody uh, involved in the context of a betrothed woman or an unbetrothed woman and everything else. And you get down to the end here, and 28 and 29 says this, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, that the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her, uh, her all his days. And so uh, I believe the NIV version uses the term raped. And if you look at some uh, commentaries, they would also understand this issue as uh, being rape. And so if you're going to be doing some open-air preaching or even if you're just going to be doing uh, evangelism more broadly in America, you're going to be coming across that objection at some point. And so what I hope to do here, and uh, you know, I, I've been debating about doing this topic for a while, and when uh, over the you know, and once this weekend happened and I started reading all these uh, kind of David and the Me Too type tweets, I figured now would be a good time to address it. And part of the reason I've been debating about waiting a while as well as seeking to maybe develop it a little bit more in the future is because I still need to work through some of the exegetical issues, um, I believe. And I I have a broad paradigm by which I address it, and I'll uh, give you those details between this week and next week. It's actually going to be a two-part series uh, getting into it. 
Um, and, and so I, I still think I need to do a little bit more work on it. Uh, so I, and so it's not totally buttoned up. Um, and so, you know, you kind of have the fear of James coming at you saying not many should presume to be teachers uh, for that, you know, you'll be judged more strictly. Um, but I can kind of seek to show you how I go about addressing uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 28 and 29. But before I get into that, I wanted to get into Rachel Den Hollander. Uh, some of you may or may not know who she is. She's the woman who um, brought the Michigan State doctor abuse uh, basically to the fore, and she gave a wonderful testimony um, at his sentencing and basically you know, preached the gospel to him. She did a great job preaching the gospel and laying out that God's wrath is before him and justice uh, must be there and et cetera, and she did a wonderful job, I believe, laying that out. And to be honest with you, I do not follow her closely. Um, I did see her in that By What Standard video, which to me was mildly curious, but uh, over the last couple months since that thing was released, I feel like there's been an uptick in her kind of activities. And you know, very broadly, anytime someone's a genuine victim of real evil, um, you can kind of understand giving them a long leash. Um, but one of the challenges becomes when they start... Uh, asserting themselves publicly, and they're presuming to teach the Bible, um, there's a certain element where she, or at least potentially others, want to be able to hide behind that victim status when people want to take issue with it. And so what I'm seeking to do here is uh, not address her per se, but simply seeking to address uh, the topic at hand, and within that, maybe slightly point at her as well as the broader culture of some of the things that I think are driving that. So uh, let's take a quick look at her tweet and some of the issues going around the David and Bathsheba incident. So a man involved with the Gospel Coalition, I believe he's the editor named Matt Smethurst, but assuming I'm pronouncing that right, sends out a very uh, fairly innocuous, innocuous tweet that says, Adam fell, Noah got drunk, Abraham lied, Jacob cheated, Moses murdered, Rahab prostituted, David fornicated, Jonah fled, Thomas doubted, Peter denied, Paul persecuted, we rebelled, Jesus redeems. Uh, that, that's, that's one of those tweets on Twitter. I didn't go through what the 72 comments said. That's one of those tweets on Twitter uh, that in the context of Christendom, you would think, all right, that's a safe one. No one's going to really take too much of an issue with that. But in comes Rachel Den Hollander with David Wright. It's important we get that right. Um, and maybe she spells out why it's important to get that right, but I don't. I never saw a tweet from her on why it's important that we get that right. Um, and I'm all for getting that right. I have no dog in this fight. So if if you know the text was really teaching that David raped Bathsheba, I'm all for that understanding of the text. Uh, if David did not, I'm all for that understanding of the text. Um, personally, I think the that's not the central thrust of the text. And if you read some feminist literature, one of the interesting things is. Uh, they will point out that the very nature of uh, the writing of Second Samuel is actually a patriarchal narrative because it does not get into the thoughts and mind of Bathsheba. And yet here we have some evangelicals seeking to get into what has really happened to Bathsheba. And even her husband sent out a tweet that they're not so concerned with what happened to uh, whether or not David raped or not, um, but they were more concerned on how we treat the Bathshebas of the world. Well, um, we're starting to get away from exegesis at that point and starting to get into eisegesis, uh, that, that we want this text to address an issue that that particular text may not be addressing. So um, if, you know, if Bathsheba was not raped, you know, how do we address 
uh, Bathsheba. If she was raped, how do we address Bathsheba? If the purpose of the text is not to tell us whether or not she was or wasn't raped or to tell us how we are to interact with someone who was raped, um, then it's kind of an exercise of futility to try to get the text uh, to teach us about that particular topic. And um, one, of the, one of the things I really wanted to uh, get at into this discussion is a little bit of where we're at on the historical timeline. So consider uh, that J.J. Jacob uh, Dan Hollander uh, sends out this tweet. It's not power difference plus sex equals rape. It's sex because of power difference equals rape. Um, Sounds good. Sounds nuanced. Sounds like a distinction. Um, But if we are in a patriarchal society, as many feminists tell us that we are, Uh, Think of the way that the left says that blacks cannot be racist because they are not in power. Um, So in a similar way, a woman, by this definition, a woman uh, could never be a rapist because she's never been – she's not one in power per se because uh, we're in a patriarchal society. And the very nature of a patriarchal society is that men have power and Now, what we don't know is whether or not women are having sex with men because of that power. And this takes us back to a book in the – I believe it came out in 1975 by a woman named Susan Brown Miller. And I'm going to read a little bit of uh, her book here because I think it's important. And this is from Chapter 8 called Power, Institution, and Authority. And it says this, all rape is an exercise in power. But some rapists have an edge that is more than physical. And here's the importance where they're going to want to get into the idea that David raped her because there is a power dynamic in play and uh, perhaps she's having sex with him because of the power, um, but maybe she's drawn to David because of the power. But anyway, so here's Bram Miller's understanding. All rape is an exercise in power, but some rapists have an edge that is more than physical. They operate within an institutionalized setting that works to their advantage and which a victim has little chance to redress her grievances. Rape in slavery and rape in wartime are two such examples. But rapists may also operate within an emotional setting or within a dependent relationship that provides a hierarchical authoritarian structure of its own that weakens a victim's resistance, distorts her perspective, and confounds her will. A therapist who suggests to his patient that the solution to her problem of frigidity lies in having sex with him is practicing rape upon a vulnerable victim, although the patient may be slow to discover that she has been, quote-unquote, had, and a court of law would not recognize such emotional coercion as a forcible act. Similarly, the glamour attached to cultural heroes such as a movie star, sports figure, rock singer, or a respected man in the community provides a psychological edge that lessens the need for physical coercion until it is too late for the victim to recognize her predicament. Cases of celebrity rape pop up in the news from time to time and usually vanish again with immoderate speed. These cases are, quote, tainted, unquote, from several angles. The glamour that emotionally disarmed the unwittingly unwitting or foolish victim and the fact that a victim has been foolish should not diminish the import of the offender's crime. Many robbery and con victims are also foolish and unwitting. Also, acts as a shield in the rapist's defense. Police and prosecutors have little enthusiasm for ruining reputations over a charge of rape. And so if you remember a couple years ago when Me Too first started uh, cooking up and Aziz Ansari was accused of rape and the girl wrote an article that I read, and I'm not even sure if it's online anymore, I remember them taking it down. Um, But basically you had a power differential there and Aziz supposedly was abusing his stardom and using his status in society uh, to get sex from a woman. And so there is sex there because of power. And in that instance, Aziz under 
uh, Jacob Dol- Don Den Hollander's definition is a rapist. And that's one of those dynamics in society that uh, we need a more normative definition, uh, I would say, that is more easily identifiable. Because in those instances, uh, take, for example, someone like an Aziz Ansari. Uh, now, obviously, in the context of Christianity, uh, the only way to be having sex is with your spouse. So in, in a truly Christian context, uh, there's a certain level where most of this discussion goes away. And this all this discussion is the fruit of a sexual revolution that has basically overthrown sex in the context of marriage. But even in the context of marriage, um, on these grounds, you can still have rape because in a Christian marriage, you're going to have man as the head of the household, and perhaps he's, because of his power dynamic, his wife is conceding to have sex with him. And so even in the context of a Christian marriage, uh, you can ultimately have rape with his definition of what he's working with there. And so it's important just because uh, we're in a postmodern context where these power dynamics are constantly going to get worked up, and ultimately it's subjective, um, I would argue, because we never know when we're at a place of egalitarianism in our power dynamics. And that's where I think something like a normative ethic and a normal biblical ethic in a Christian context that includes superiors and inferiors. And I would recommend that you go check out the WCF on uh, regarding duties of inferiors uh, to superiors and superiors to inferiors, um, because a Christian culture is going to have inferiors and superiors, superiors and inferiors. And we are in a context that's driving towards egalitarianism. And that's much of what is de- driving the discussion with the Den Hollanders and stuff like that, uh, even though they may unwittingly be setting it up uh, for that context. So uh, with that said, I'm going to play uh, two brief clips of kids coming up to basically ask about Deuteronomy uh, chapter 22, uh, 28, 29, and they're both very similar. Then I'm going to briefly address uh, the basic context of seeking, of how I'm going to seek to address it, then I'm going to address it more thoroughly next week. Um, so a lot of people are like confused on who's saying that if, you're, if a girl is raped, then she should marry the person who... We don't believe that. You don't believe that? No. No, we don't, we don't believe that. Uh, I, I don't know what he said. I didn't get to hear him, but I would say neither of us believe that. We're, we're often accused of saying that because in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 28, it says that if a virgin is taken um, outside the city and, and, and then the guy and the guy and the guy is to uh, and the guy is to marry her. So so it, what the debate is over is how do we understand Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 28, 29? We don't we don't believe that what's going on there is what our modern concept of rape. So the uh, I, I, I probably should qualify that ever so slightly and say, well, that might be depending on what your definition of rape is. Now, if you accept Susan Brown Miller's uh, definition of rape, it's a very real possibility uh, that you could understand Deuteronomy chapter 22 um, in the context of a patriarchal society and men having power, women do not, as uh, fitting um, Susan Brown Miller's definition of rape. Um, and so that's why I think a much more physical, coerced, aspect of the discussion is going on that uh, needs to be had. And so here's actually the next day, another young woman uh, coming up, uh, having heard my buddy uh, seeking to address Deuteronomy chapter 22, 28, 29, and people hear what they want to hear um, regarding that. And so here's another clip. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask. So, I would say he probably did not say that. Uh, from this standpoint, from this standpoint. So, 
there's a verse, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 28 and 29, um, that oftentimes students will bring up and say, "Are you? does a virgin have to marry her rapist? So it says if a woman's out in the countryside or whatever and a man takes her and they're found together, uh, he shall probably pay the father like 30 shekels or 50 shekels, whatever, and he shall marry her. And so that often comes up on a college campus and saying, does a woman have to marry her rapist? And so I didn't hear what he said because someone else asked me that. So I would say this. Having preached with him before, so I can't vouch exactly what he said yesterday because I wasn't there, um, but having preached with him plenty of times in the past, I would say that he was probably addressing that question and that verse, and ultimately, if what he said in the past is any indication of what he would have said yesterday, but I would say if the past is any indication, we do not believe that a woman has to marry her rapist, uh, and we believe that rapists should be executed. So... And rapists should be executed. So it's always uh, mildly humorous to mention that on campus, only from the standpoint that people are kind of shocked uh, that we we would believe such a thing. And so, in one breath, it, it, it's odd because uh, rape is such a such an emotional issue, and people get so hot on it. Um, but when you suggest that the rapist should be executed, um, it's interesting to me that uh, people are a little bit taken aback. But so, so what's going on here? When why, why me too, David? Um, Deuteronomy chapter 22 and everything that's going on here. So the basic idea is this: in Genesis chapter three, uh, Eve she sees uh, the fruit. Uh, she sees that it's beautiful or good, and then she takes it. In a similar fashion, David in 2 Samuel 11, I believe the main thrust of the text is that a fall is taking place. This is David's fall. He sees um, she's beautiful, and he takes. And this should be echoes of what's going on in Genesis chapter 23. And the main thrust of what's going on here is that it is uh, the fall of David. And, and, And even, and I'll let you tease out how you believe Yahweh handles evil and everything else, but even the judgment uh, that takes place onto um, David from this uh, is fits in with the law of lex talionis, which is basically the idea that the punishment fits the crime. And what uh, David, uh, in his interaction with Nathan, when he ends up learning, he says this, thus says the Lord, behold, this is in uh, chapter 12, verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I'll raise up evil against you and out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of, of this son. And that is fulfilled later in the text. And, uh, you know, if you're following the law of Lex Talionis, it's not merely that David's wives are going to be committing adultery on him, but Yahweh is going to have David's wives raped. And so I think even from the law of Lex Talionis here um, points me in the direction, you know, I'll let you tease out whether or not you think Yahweh has David's wives being raped um, or not. Um, but the law of Lex Talionis tells us that the, the punishment on David's wives fits what he did to another man's wife. Um, and so how you, how you want to tease all that out, I'll let you do that. But, I, and, but my point is, I think the main thrust of what's going on here is that this is David's fault. It's not addressing uh, our postmodern context of power dynamics and the egalitarian thrust. Did David have power? Yes. Um, uh, was it an abuse of power? I, I'm even willing to say yes, because uh, obviously, um, you know, the guy in the gutter doesn't have the opportunity to just tell any old woman to come here. And so in a similar fashion, going back to Susan Browns Miller, the psychological edge that David would have, in that context, yes, it's a rape. I would say in a context of coercion necessarily, where coercion is a violent act with threats, um, that's you know, that's just not there in the text. Um, so how does that relate to Deuteronomy chapter 22? Um, I think the idea of the woman being seized or taken is in a similar context of a fall where 
uh, things are happening outside of their normal context. And what's also going to be important uh, for our discussion is the story of Dina in Genesis chapter 34. And I'm going to be building a little bit out of a guy named Caleb Carmichael. So if you were to Google Caleb Carmichael's name, uh, you'll, you'll see his approach to the Old Testament, which I generally agree with, although I think he's errant uh, theologically in many ways. But, but the basic idea is this, is that he sees the laws of Deuteronomy as a reflection on the patriarchal narratives. And so if, if we were to sit down and we really were steeped in the book of Deuteronomy, um, there are many echoes taking place from the book of Genesis where when you're reading a narrative and you reflect upon the law, you can hear the patriarchal narrative taking place in that law. And so in some respects, what I'm going to be arguing and developing next week a bit more is the idea that the law in Deuteronomy chapter 22, 28, and 29 is intertwined with the story of Dina in Genesis chapter 34. And I'm also going to suggest that I do not believe that Dina was raped in Genesis chapter 34. And so that's obviously part of a bigger discussion, and and that's why I think some of my exegetical work needs to be hammered out. Uh, But that's the trajectory of where I want to take it. And so so even the basic narrative uh, of what I'm still going to be pushing is not culturally acceptable in our context because... It does see sex as essentially a familial act, that it's the uniting of families and perhaps cross nations and everything else. And and what's going on there in Deuteronomy chapter 22, 28, 29 is still anathema to our culture. Um, but I also think it's important that it's not what we would understand as, uh, I would say, the violent act of rape. So... Uh, that, that's this episode of the Campus Preacher Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to contact me, Keith, at campuspreacher.com. You can hop on the Twitter at Campus Evangel. You can go to Campus Preacher on uh, the, the Instagram, or you can go to Facebook and just punch me in Keith Darrell. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, don't feel free to reach out. Uh, Lord bless you. Keep you. Talk to you next week. Hoping and hope that he might see you grow. might well come before the bloom he runs on his way there's no time to be going slow